We'll go ahead and get started today. Uh, my name is Craig Warner, one of the pastors here on staff. Glad you could join us this morning. Um, and I do also just want to say uh, thank you to everyone that's uh, that served. It truly is um, our honor to have you with us today. And um, <clears throat> I know he was up here, but uh, our very own Pastor Todd was a uh, tech sergeant in the Air Force. And so um, his, his life has just been characterized by service. And so thank you too, Toddy. Love you, buddy. Um, uh, also, on, on behalf of the pastors, we do just want to say thank you uh, for your goodness to us, for your kindness, for the love that you guys expressed. Um, uh, the, the deacon's wives provided a, a lunch for the staff this past Monday, uh, and uh, we got so many, and we got a gift basket uh, from you guys on, on behalf of the church, and, and uh, so truly from, from the pastors, we just want to say thank you. It is our, our life's joy and our privilege uh, to get to serve First Baptist Church and to consider you guys um, our family. You, you guys must really love us because Corey even got a basket this week, and so... That's, that's saying something. Um, Troy, Pastor Troy and Pastor Jeff uh, are out of town, so you got third string this morning. Um, Pastor Troy is uh, teaching down at uh, Cali Harbin in Georgia this morning, and Pastor Jeff uh, is up at um, Wildwood uh, teaching at their missions conference this week. And so uh, be praying for them today and even in, uh, into this week, um, but, uh, but I really am grateful to, to get to be here um, this morning um, when Troy asked me to, uh, to fill in. It is, it is a privilege, and we will be continuing uh, our series in Nehemiah. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and open up to Nehemiah chapter 4. Um, last week, Troy got, uh, was, in, was in chapter 3. And he got into uh, the first five gates mentioned uh, in that passage. He'll be back next week uh, to do the other five gates um, that were mentioned. But let me just say, it's a good thing that, uh, that Troy did last week. Because when he got to the dung gate, <laughs> I, just had, I, had too many, I had too many thoughts going through my too many, too many jokes. And it's not, that, it's not that Troy didn't think of them either. He's just mature enough not to... Not to share those uh, in public because, man, if I had to teach last week, that message would have gone down the tube. <laughs> that's just one. That's just one example of just all the ones that I Okay. No, but truly, let's, uh, let's get into our passage for today, all right? So Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 1, but, now let's stop right there. All right, we're going to stop right there this morning because that word but that starts chapter four is actually a conjunction word. And what that does is it ties us back to everything that has happened up to this point so far. Uh, so to make sure that we're all up to speed and because I, I love the story of Nehemiah, I've really enjoyed this, uh, this, this series and um, I've always liked uh, the story of Nehemiah. We're just going to take a minute to recap all that's happened in chapters one, two, and three. Okay, so. First, in chapter 1, we get Nehemiah's origin story, right? Every hero has an origin story. We find Nehemiah serving in the king's palace. He was most likely living a good life. He gets the news that the walls and gates of Jerusalem have been destroyed. In fact, they've been destroyed for over 140 years. And so this comes as terrible news to Nehemiah. And it breaks 
his heart. It breaks Nehemiah's heart. But God takes that broken heart and he turns it into a holy burden and our hero of the story is born. And and this has set a determination in Nehemiah to see God's people restored and the walls of the city of Jerusalem rebuilt. All right, so chapter one. Then next, chapter two. Nehemiah had the opportunity to ask the king permission for him to leave the palace and to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. We saw that not only does the king grant him permission, but Nehemiah takes it one step further, and he has the boldness to ask the king to give him the resources to rebuild the gates. And the king agrees. So Nehemiah makes his way to Jerusalem, he surveys what's left of the walls, and he begins to develop a plan. Once he has a plan in place, he shares it with the people in verse 17 in what I like to call a formula for vision casting. Okay? So Nehemiah identifies the problem, he proposes a solution, and then he solidifies their purpose. Let's take a look in, in chapter 2, 17 and 18. Then said I unto them, ye see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lieth, with, lieth waste, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. Okay, so this is, uh, this is the problem. So he gives them a solution. So come, let us build up the wall of Jerusalem, that we be no more a reproach. Then I told them of the hand of my God which was upon me, as also the king's words that he had spoken unto me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for this good work. And I love those couple of verses. I'm sure if we were there, this would have been like a, like a William Wallace and Braveheart level speech where the people agreed that something had to be done. Something had to be done. And so that brings us to chapter 3 then, where we begin with the high priest who rose up to build the sheep gate, and we saw the significance of that um, the last couple of weeks, really, and we'll see the significance of the rest of the gates next week. But the thing that I want us to see is how God is using every person to do their part in rebuilding the wall. Over and over again in chapter 3, we see someone doing their part, and then a phrase like, and next unto him and next to them, and next unto them, and so on, right? All throughout chapter 3, we see that. And you see, the people began to do the work that God had for them, and they did it next to each other, all the way around the city, so that the whole perimeter was covered. Everyone was doing their part. Progress was being made. The wall was being rebuilt, and Jerusalem was being restored, and then that brings us back around to chapter 4, which brings us back to the first word of verse 1, but. Because that word is not only a conjunction word that ties us back to everything that's previously happened, but it's also a contrasting word letting us know that something is about to change. Because up until this point, things have been going pretty well, right? Chapter 1, God sets the desire in Nehemiah's heart. He gets permission from the king. The plan is in place, and the people are on board to make it happen in chapter 2. Then chapter 3, the people join forces. They begin to repair the walls. They rebuild the gates. They're starting to make some progress, but. And so let's keep reading in chapter 4. We're going to read through uh, verse 6. But it came to pass that when Sanballat heard that we builded the wall, he was wroth and took great indignation and mocked the Jews. And he spake before his brethren in the army of Samaria and said, What do these feeble Jews? Will they fortify themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they make an end in a day? 
Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of the rubbish which are burned? Now Tobiah, the Ammonite, was by him, and he said, Even that which they build, if a fox go up, he shall even break down their stone wall. Hear, O our God, for we are despised, and turn their reproach upon their own head, and give them a prey in the land of captivity, and cover not their iniquity, and let not their sin be blotted out from before thee, for they have provoked thee to anger before the builders. So built we the wall, and all the wall was joined together until the half thereof, for the people had a mind to work. So the Jews just got started. They just got started in their work. They're on the front end of the project. They're just beginning to build some momentum. They make a little progress when Sanballat and Tobiah show up with some of their friends. Okay, of course, because every good story has conflict, right? So the enemies show up. It's important that we note where they're at in this work when they begin to experience some trouble. They're just getting started, right? They're just on the front end. Because uh, maybe you're at a point in your life that God is beginning to do a work in you. Maybe you're new to this Christian life. You're just beginning your walk with God. Maybe you've recently started to take your growth seriously and you begin discipleship or you've just gotten involved in ministry. Or maybe you've decided to take your next step, whatever that might be. Maybe you've come to a point that you have finally had enough of messing around with the sin in your life and have decided to get rid of it. You've decided to clean your life up and to get some accountability. Or maybe you're at a point in your life where you've realized that your walk with God has become a little stagnant. You can look back and point to times that you had a strong walk with the Lord, that you served regularly or maybe even had a lead role in some ministry. But none of those things are characteristic of your life anymore. I want you to take a minute because it's important that you identify what it is that God is currently doing in your life. And if you're here, I believe that God is working in your life. It's just a matter of uh, whether or not you can identify what that is. So see what God is currently doing, maybe what he's about to do, or what he's no longer doing in your life. Because wherever you find yourself, I believe that God's word will have something for us to apply to our lives today from what we see. So before we go any further, I'm going to take a second to pray. And while I'm doing that, why don't you go ahead and pray right there where you are and ask God maybe to to reveal some stuff to you. Ask him to show you what he's doing in your life so that the steps that we see uh, in the following verses can be applied to your life in a personal way. All right? All right, let's pray. Lord, we do come to you this morning and um, certainly privileged to, to be here to, uh, to share your word with, with the church. And so, uh, Lord, I just ask that today that is uh, exactly what happens. Uh, that through uh, the words that you've given me to share, that your word would go forth and that your word would do the work. And so, Lord, I pray that you would uh, begin to speak even now to the, uh, to the people that are here to show them uh, what you're doing in their life so that we can look at the example of Nehemiah and apply the steps that he takes and learn the lesson from how he responds um, so that they can continue to grow in their life and they won't get hung up uh, in this one area. So God, I pray that you'd work this morning uh, in us and through us. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Okay, so 
The Jews are just beginning to rebuild the walls, and I wanted you to identify where you're at in your life because it's important for you to know that if God is at work in your life, you can expect some opposition. You can expect some opposition, and that brings us to our first point, the opposition. The opposition. Letter A. The opposition from the enemy comes when you are doing what I call a worthy work. Opposition from the enemy comes when you are doing a worthy work. Not every work a person does is considered a worthy work. Some people spend their whole lives struggling and toiling and clawing their way to some accomplishment, to some achievement. And even though it was hard work, that doesn't mean it was a worthy work. Just because it was hard doesn't mean that you experienced opposition from the enemy. Some people like that look back on their lives and they see everything that they've accomplished, everything that they've worked for, and they still feel empty. The Jews faced opposition because they were doing a worthy work. And we see this in chapter 3, verse 5, where they refer to that work as the work of their Lord. The work of their Lord. They were doing the work of their Lord. All right, So the Jews had a worthy work. But here's the thing. So do we. So do we. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. For as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Okay, we must be steadfast. We must be unmovable. We must be always abounding in the work of of the Lord because the work of the Lord is a worthy work. And the enemy will find opportunity in your apathy to the work. And so that's why we have to be steadfast in it because the enemy will find opportunity in your apathy to the work. He's looking for the chance to move us off course, to cause our focus to drift from what God has called us to. The enemy will show up on the front end of the work because, um, because that's when he'll have the least amount of resistance. Because that's when you have the least amount of momentum. And we will experience uh, the least amount of opposition. Or excuse me, the, 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 yes, the least amount of opposition from the enemy. Because we can see that the opposition grows as the work grows. We can see this in Nehemiah. As the work grew, so did Nehemiah's desire for the work. And so did the enemy's opposition against the work. So we see Nehemiah's desire grow. In chapter uh, 2, he refers to it as the work. And then later in chapter 2, once he shared the vision with everyone, it grew to this good work. And then by the time they were well into the project, in Nehemiah 6.3, he said, I am doing a great work. So Nehemiah's, Nehemiah's desire for the work grew as the, as the work went on. And when you're doing a great work, people will take notice. And those that are against what God is doing in you and through you, you know what they're going to do? They're going to hear about it because news will spread. If you're doing a worthy work, the enemy is going to hear about it. And we see this over and over again in Nehemiah. So let's start with our passage, chapter 4, verse 1. Where it says, but it came to pass that when Sanballat heard that we builded the wall, he was wroth. He was mad. He was angry. 
And he took great indignation and he mocked the Jews. Sanballat heard about what God was doing through the Jews and it made him angry. He allowed that to grow inside of him until it impacted his behavior and it came out in the form of mockery to God's people against God's work. We go back a little bit further. We see the same thing, Nehemiah 2.10. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the servant, the Ammonite, heard of it, it grieved them exceedingly that there was come a man to seek the welfare of the children of Israel. So God begins to work in Nehemiah, and when they heard that someone cared about God's people, it grieved them. They heard about it because they were doing a worthy work. Nehemiah 2, 18 through 19. Then I told them of the, of the hand of my God, which was upon me, as also the king's words that he had spoken unto me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for this good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the servant, the Ammonite, and Geshem the Arabian, what they do? They heard it. They laughed us to scorn and despised us and said, what is this thing that ye do? Will ye rebel against the king? You see, God, God began to prepare his people for the work. And when our antagonist heard that Nehemiah cast the vision and that the people strengthened their hand for the work, they despised them. The enemy despised that because God's people were doing a worthy work. Nehemiah 4, 7 through 8. But it came to pass that when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabians and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the walls of Jerusalem were made up and that the breaches began to be stopped, then they were very wroth. They were very angry and conspired all of them together to come and to fight against Jerusalem and to hinder it. To hinder it. When the enemy heard that progress was being made on the work, they were very angry and conspired to fight God's people in order to hinder the work. God's people were doing a worthy work. And because it was a worthy work, their enemies heard about it. They heard about it. Let's keep looking at Nehemiah 6, 1 through 2. Now it came to pass when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem, the Arabian, and the rest of our enemies heard that I had builded the wall and that there was no breach left therein, though at that time I had not set up the doors upon the gates, that Sanballat and Geshem sent unto me, saying, Come, let us meet together in some one of the villages in the plain of Ono, and that should be a sign right there, okay? That's a bad sign. Oh, no. But they thought to do me mischief, all right? They thought to do me mischief. Even when the work was practically done, the enemy heard of it and still wanted to kill Nehemiah. That's how much they hated to see God's people doing God's work. You need to understand this response from the enemy because when, when you sign up to do the work of the Lord, you can guarantee that there will be opposition from the enemy. Okay? And so that's why I want you to understand where you're at in your life right now, what God is doing right now in your life, because if he's at work, there will be opposition in your life. And they're going to try to get you early on. They're going to try to stop you early on. At every turn, at every step of progress in your walk with God, the enemy will try to stop you because Satan hates to see God receive the glory from your life. And notice in these verses how the opposition grows the further along they are in the work. Remember, it's easier, easier for the enemy to stop you when you have little to no momentum. <clears throat> That's why it's so important that we learn how to deal with these attacks early on. Right? Because as you move forward, the opposition will multiply. We see it when we went uh, from two guys to three guys in chapter 2. Right? It went from Sanballat and Tobiah, and then uh, Geshem was added in there. 
And then our passage starts out with the Horonites, which are Sanballat's brethren, as mentioned there, and the army of Samaria. Where did they come from? I don't know. The opposition grows in chapter 4 to include the Arabians, the Ammonites, the Ashdodites. And then finally in chapter 6, Nehemiah quits counting, and he just says, Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem, and the rest of our enemies. He's like, I don't, I don't, even, know, I don't even know who's out there anymore. Right? He lost track. Or more likely, he just didn't care anymore because he knew that he was doing a worthy work. So it didn't matter how many enemies were going to be brought against him. It wasn't going to stop what, what God was doing in Nehemiah and through Nehemiah. The further along you are in the work, the more enemies you'll encounter. The greater the work, the greater the opposition. When you decide to get on board with what God is doing, you will experience opposition because the enemy will hear about it and he'll try to stop it. The enemy does that early on, employing a couple tactics that we see are used in this passage today. So letter B, the enemy's tactics begin with fear and doubt. The enemy's tactics begin with fear and doubt. Let's look back in uh, verses 1 and 2. But it came to pass that when Samballot heard that we builded the wall, he was wroth and took indignation and mocked the Jews. And he spake before his brethren in the army of Samaria and said, What do these feeble Jews? Will they fortify themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they make an end in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of the rubbish which are burned? The first thing the enemy does is he tries to scare the Jews out of the work by, by, uh, by bringing a show of force. That's basically what he does. He brings a show of force. Sanballat shows up with the Horonites and the army of Samaria with the threat of harm. Because why else, would you, why else would you bring an army, right, if you're not intending to hurt somebody, right? He shows up with this threat of force to try to scare the Jews out of the work that they're doing. He's trying to intimidate them. And our enemy will try to do the same thing to you. Because you can look out and you can see that the whole world is designed to stop you from doing the work of the Lord. It's set up that way. It's set up that way. But we know from John 16, this isn't in your notes, but Christ promises us, guarantees us, that in the world we will suffer tribulation, but we can be of good cheer. Why? Because he has overcome the world. So yes, there will be tribulation. There will be opposition. There will be an enemy. But we can be of good cheer because he has overcome the world. And so the Lord has given us some ways to overcome the enemy's attacks. And when it comes to fear, <clears throat> we overcome fear with courage. We overcome fear with courage. Let's look at Deuteronomy 31.6. Be strong and of a good courage. Fear not, nor be afraid of them, for the Lord thy God, he it is that doth go with thee, he will not fail thee, nor forsake thee. Right, so if God has already overcome the world, which we know that from John 16, and he is with us, according to Deuteronomy 31, we have nothing to fear. We have nothing to fear. And so the enemy is going to try to get you to stop what God is doing in your life, by trying to scare you out of it. And you know what? It's not that it's not scary. It can be. But we can have courage because we know that the Lord is with us. Now, this is not courage in what we can do or who we are, obviously. But we can have courage because we know that God is with us and God is for us. And according to Romans 8, if God is for us, 
who can be against us? The answer, the answer is no one. It's a rhetorical question. But just in case you're not familiar with that passage, it's nothing, okay? <clears throat> when you're doing the Lord's work, he is right there with you. And we even see this in the picture of Nehemiah, right? So Nehemiah is a type of Christ. Troy would have touched on that in weeks past. And we can see all throughout Nehemiah that he's right there working with and fighting with God's people. And the same is true with Christ in our life. In this first case, the fear comes from an outside threat, and the enemy is trying to scare them into quitting, and if he can, he will. If he can, he will. But if that external tactic fails, the enemy will try an internal tactic. It won't be intimidation of force, but the instigation of doubt. These tactics really are two sides to the same coin. We see in our passage that the enemy begins to mock the Jews in front of their enemies, and he tries to arouse doubt in the Jews by calling into question seven things. So let's take a look at these in, uh, in verses 2 and 3. He spake before his brethren, the army of Samaria, and said, What do these feeble Jews? Will they fortify themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they make an end in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of the rubbish which are burned? Now Tobiah the Ammonite was by him, and he said, Even that which they build, if a fox go up, he shall even break down their stone wall. <clears throat> now, these verses always make me laugh, okay? <laughs> it's because I can't help but picture these two goons in my head, okay? So Sanballat, I'm just going to share it with you. Sanballat, he's this tall, thin, rat-faced villain with a flair for the dramatic Whenever you call him by his name, he probably corrects you, and he says, it's pronounced Sanbala. The, <laughs> the T is silent, right? And then there's Tobiah. He's this short, tubby minion of a man who's always seeking Sanballat's approval, right? So Sanballat's giving this sharp speech in front of everyone, raising some questions of true concern, and then Tobiah chimes in, huh, yeah, even if a fox goes up on that wall, he'll break down their wall. That's a good one, huh? <laughs> right? Sanballat's just shaking his head like, why won't this guy leave me alone? Okay, now, there's no biblical evidence for any of this, okay? <laughs> I just didn't want to keep that image to myself, all right? So let's get back to what's actually happening in this passage, okay? The enemy is using a tactic of doubt. And so the enemy will try to cause you to doubt by calling into question seven things. He'll try to cause you to doubt by calling into question, number one, your ability. Sanballat says, what do these feeble Jews? The enemy calls into question their ability by asking what these feeble Jews are doing. It's not that he didn't know they were building a wall. It's that he thought they weren't able to. He underestimated what God's people can do when they're doing God's work with God on their side. And in fact, we see this all throughout, all throughout Scripture. Several times over. So the enemy is asking, are you even capable? So you say God's doing this work in your life and you're going to turn things around, you're going to get involved, you're going to uh, you know, take your family serious, whatever it is. He's like, are you even capable of doing that? What do these feeble Jews? And then he'll try to cause you to doubt by calling into question your purpose. Sam Ballot says, will they fortify themselves? 
To me, this seems like an, like an obvious answer. It's kind of what walls are for, right? Walls are constructed to protect the inhabitant that lives within them. That's the main reason I have walls at my house, not just so that I can hang pictures on the inside of them, but to keep everything on the outside, outside, right? That's the point of walls. But he's questioning their purpose. That, but that's why the Jews are rebuilding the walls. Their lack of fortification, as we saw in weeks past, it was a reproach to them, and it was a reproach to the Lord. They're building the walls to regain not just their protection, but their dignity and God's glory. But the enemy asks, why even bother? God's doing something in your life, but why even bother? Next, the enemy will try to cause you to doubt by calling into question your dedication. Your dedication. Sanballat asks, will they sacrifice? Now, when the nation of Israel would make sacrifices, they would do it to recognize all that God had done for them and to consecrate that accomplishment to the Lord. All right, It would serve as a moment of worship and praise and a memorial of thanksgiving and remembrance. And so Sanballat's saying, will they even sacrifice? Will they even dedicate what they've done to the Lord? So the enemy will try to make you question, will God even be pleased with this? Is this something that you think is worthy of God? Could this possibly be remembered as a moment of triumph? The enemy asks, is it even worth it? When God's working in your life, he'll try to get you to doubt it by asking, is it even worth it? The fourth thing that he'll call into question is your progress. Your progress. Will they make an end in a day? Now, he's using a little hyperbole here because the obvious answer is, well, no. They won't finish their work in a day. It's like the old adage, Jerusalem wasn't built in a day or something like that. (laughs) But he's exaggerating. He's exaggerating to call into question just how quickly they can finish the job and find safety behind their own walls before the enemy takes advantage of them. Right? So they're doing all this work, but are they going to be able to do it quick enough? The enemy asks, will it even matter? You can't, you can't even do it quick enough for it to make a difference. Will it even matter? And he asks the same question in your life when God's doing a work in and through you. Will it, will it even matter? Can you, can you do it quick enough? Next, he calls into question your resources. Your resources. Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of the rubbish which are burned? Okay, so the enemy will try to get you to doubt by calling into question the resources you use. And we saw this in previous weeks. The Jews' intention was to rebuild the walls with the stones that were left from the ruins of the previous wall. That's exactly what they intended to do. Right? For, these, for us, though, these stones, they picture, what do they picture? They picture the Word of God. We saw that in weeks past. They picture the Word of God. We already have all that we need to rebuild the lives of our wall, or excuse me, the walls of our lives. But the enemy asks, is it really enough? Is that really enough? This is, this is all you need? You believe that? Is it enough? After this onslaught of mocking questions, Sanballat sidekick speaks up. Tobiah jumps in, and he calls into question your determination. Your determination when he says, even that which they build, if a fox go up. Now this insult's a little backhanded, Okay. The enemy is calling into question their determination to see the work completed. You see, we think of foxes as these elusive, majestic creatures 
But in Scripture, they're varmints. Okay? They're like our raccoons or possums. Foxes show up in the Bible when something has been abandoned, neglected, or left desolate to spoil and to scavenge what's left. We see this a few places. Psalm 63.10. They shall fall by the sword. They shall be a portion for the foxes. Right? So these people are, are being killed in this verse, and the foxes are going to show up and scavenge what's left. Lamentations 5.18. Because, uh, because of the mountain of Zion, which is desolate, the foxes walk upon it. And then Song of Solomon 2.15. Take us the foxes, the little foxes, that spoil the vines, for our vines have tender grapes. See, foxes will spoil any growth that you're experiencing. God's doing something in your life. You start to grow in your walk with him. These foxes are going to show up, and they especially do it on the front end. In this verse in Song of Solomon, it says, our vines have tender grapes. They're on the front end of their growth. Okay, They're still young and susceptible to being spoiled, and that's when the foxes show up. And we have to be careful when it comes to the work of what God has called us to. Because during those early stages, you get serious about turning your life around. You're going to spend time with God every day. You're going to have your family at church every Sunday. You're going to get involved in midweek life groups. And you start off and things are going well, right? Just like we saw with the Jews. Things are going well and for some reason or another, you take a little break. Right? You have a busy day, a busy week. You skip time with God. Something comes up on your schedule. Your kid has basketball practice. So you miss a Sunday or a Wednesday or two. And if you're not careful, if you're not watching for those small moments of abandonment, during those times of neglect, those little foxes sneak in. They sneak in the form of excuses. Your determination gives way to apathy. Your walk with God slows to a crawl. The work that God was doing in and through you becomes deserted, not because God has given up on you, but because you have allowed a little fox to grow into a big problem. So beware the foxes, the little foxes that spoil the vine. All that to say the enemy will try to cause doubt by calling into question your determination. The enemy will ask, will they even finish? Will you even be able to finish what God's doing in your life? And then the seventh thing is the quality of the work. Calls into question the quality he shall even break down their stone wall. <clears throat> Lastly, the enemy will question the quality of your work. Is what you're building even worth it? Will it last? Can it stand the test of time alone, the attack of the enemy? Why bother when there's no guarantee for a lasting benefit? The enemy asks, will it even last? Will it even last? These questions are enough to cause a little doubt to flare up, even in the most faithful of saints. But if we fast forward a little bit, We'll find the answers to everything the enemy calls into question. So will God come through for these feeble Jews? Will they fortify themselves? Will they make quick enough progress? Will they revive the stones? Will they finish the job? Right? All these questions are, are answered in one spot, a couple chapters ahead. So, spoiler alert, okay? Try not to steal any Troy's thunder. But let's look at Nehemiah 6, 15 through 16. So the wall was finished. In the twenty and fifth day of the month of Elu, in fifty and two days, and it came to pass that when all our enemies, look at this, heard thereof, and all the heathen that were about us saw these things, they were much cast down in their own eyes, for they perceived that this work 
was wrought of our God. So yes, they fortified themselves. They revived the stones. Yes, they finished the job. They rebuilt the walls that lay in ruins for over 140 years in just 52 days. I'd say that's pretty good progress, right? And did God come through for them? You better believe it. And when all their enemies heard that the work was completed, they knew that that work was of God. But that's not all, because what about the question of their sacrifice? Did they ever dedicate their accomplishment to God? Were they able to show their consecration to the work that he had called them to? Well, the answer is yes, of course. The day came when they were able to prove their devotion to the work of their Lord. Nehemiah 12, 43. Also that day they offered great sacrifices and rejoiced. And God had made them rejoice with great joy. The wives also and the children rejoiced so that the joy of Jerusalem was what? It was heard, even afar off. Hey, Sanballat, did you hear that? Right, he's keeping track of the progress they're making. They finally get to the point where they sacrifice, they consecrate their work to the Lord, and it says that it was heard, even afar off. I love that. Because not only will God come through for you, but he'll stick it to the enemy while he does it. And then what about the quality of their work? Right, what about the quality? Well, the walls around Jerusalem most likely stood for about another 500 years. Long enough for generations to come to be impacted by the work that the Lord did through Nehemiah. And as far as Jerusalem itself, well, we know that God's still not done with it. What a testimony. What a testimony. Think about it in terms of your own life. What kind of legacy will be left because of your faithfulness to the work of God? Doesn't that make a little opposition today worth it in the long run? The moment you start taking the work of the Lord serious, you start to see the opposition and other people start questioning you. And I think this is interesting, right? So Sanballat and Tobiah show up. Sanballat, his name means uh, enemy in disguise or hate in secret. Okay, so it's pretty obvious Sanballat is against what the Jews are doing. But Tobiah, I thought this was interesting. His name means something like God is good. Isn't that interesting? So when it comes to God doing a work in your life, there's going to be some pretty obvious enemies in your life. They're going to be against what God is doing. But then there's some who might be right next to you. Not, not today, not like sitting right next to you today. I'm just saying like in, in, the, in this process, okay? Don't look at your neighbors. But they're going to say, oh, man, God is good. Yeah, I'm a Christian. I believe that same thing. But are you, are you serious? You want to get serious about this? You're going to take it to the next step? We've got to be careful when we, we experience opposition in our life. People will start to question, you're not capable of this work. Why even bother? Do you really think you can please the Lord with your life now after everything that you've done? There's no way you can take steps forward in your walk with God. Do you honestly believe that the Bible is enough? Do you believe that this Bible is enough? You'll give up before you even get started. And this is something that you can build your life on? You think this is, this is a work that will last the test of time? So how do we combat the tactic of the enemy? How do we overcome the doubt raised by, question, by the questioning of the work that God has called us to? Well, we overcome doubt with confidence. We saw that we overcome fear with courage, and we overcome doubt 
with confidence. Now, this is not confidence in what we can accomplish, but confidence in what God has already done and will continue to do. Look at Philippians 1.6. Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. We can have confidence that if God starts a work in us, he'll see it through. God started a work in Jerusalem, and he saw it through. And if he started a work in you, you can have confidence that he'll see it through in you too. That was hard. Listen, knowing what God said and having confidence in his word is really our only counter to these attacks of fear and doubt. Because do you understand that these, these attacks, these tactics that the enemy's using, it's nothing new. This is nothing new. This is the same attack we see from Satan back in Genesis. Back in the garden when the serpent questioned God's word and he tried to get Eve to doubt what God said and caused Eve to fear that she was missing out on something greater. The enemy keeps using the same attacks. And our enemy, Satan, he still uses the same attacks today. Do you know why? Because they still work. They still work. And that's why we have to know how to deal with them. So, to recap our first point. Just as you're getting started in a worthy work, you can expect opposition. And the enemy will try to stop or to hinder that work by using fear and doubt. However, we don't have to fall prey to the enemy's tactics if we respond to them the right way. And that brings us to our next point. And these next two will go much quicker than our first one. So that comes, that comes to your response. And I put your response because I want you to make this personal. Nehemiah experienced his first real taste of opposition here in chapter 4. And it won't be his last, but what Nehemiah does next sets the precedent for how we or excuse me, for how he and how we should respond to opposition every time it shows up in our own lives. You know what he did? He prayed. He prayed. I want you to notice something. Remember how every time the enemy heard what the Jews were up to, they showed up in opposition? Well, Nehemiah didn't care what the enemy heard. He wanted to make sure that God heard what was going on. So look at the first word of his prayer in verse 4. What is it? Hear. Oh, our God. He wants to make sure he has God's ear when it comes to this opposition. He doesn't care what the enemy's up to. He's going to go to the one who can do something about it. Hear, O oh, our God, for we are despised, and turn their reproach upon their own head, and give them for a prey in the land of captivity, and cover not their iniquity, and let not their sin be blotted out from before thee, for they have provoked thee to anger before the builders. The first thing we learn from Nehemiah when it comes to dealing with opposition is that prayer should be our first response not our last resort. Prayer should be our first response, not our last resort. Now, I've made this point before years ago when I had the opportunity to do a, a single message on Nehemiah. Uh, and you might recognize it as our little tagline for our monthly uh, prayer first meetings, but I think it's important that we address it again. Because at least I know for me that I need this reminder. Right? How many of you are like me? Whenever a problem or a situation comes up, you try to fix it in your own power, with your own resources, your own intellect, right? Anybody? Okay, one, two, three, four, okay, just, all right. I'm assuming everybody's like that to some degree, all right? And I hate that. I hate that because I know that not only does God care about what I'm going through, but he's the one capable of dealing with it way better than I am. Look at 1 Peter 5, 7, casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. 
We need to go to God because he cares about what we're going through. But not only does he care, he's capable of handling it. Ephesians 3.20. Now unto him that is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that worketh in us. We can make prayer our last, or excuse me, we can't make prayer our last option. We have to take it to God first. And then when there's some problem or tragedy that's taken place, people try to handle it themselves. Nothing seems to be working. Have you ever heard them say something like, well, all we can do now is what? Is pray. It's our last option, right? While I understand their sentiment, if we wait until things are so bad that nothing we try is working, we finally resort to prayer, we're usually too late. 1 Thessalonians 5.17, what does it tell us to do? Pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. That means every day, all the time, in every situation, before every opportunity, at any sign of trouble, pray. Praying without ceasing means that prayer should be our natural response to anything. We see this pattern in Nehemiah's life. And we should take note. I'm going to list them there. You can look up what was going on in his his life there. But Nehemiah responded in prayer to tragedy. He responded in prayer to opportunity. So it's not just when bad things happen to us. We We should respond in prayer when the good things happen as well. Nehemiah responded in prayer to criticism in our passage today. Responded in prayer to resistance. Responded in prayer to accusation. Responded in prayer to deception. So what situation are you in? What circumstances are you facing? Because that should answer the question, what are you praying about? We see in all these circumstances that Nehemiah's first response was to pray. In our passage, we not only see that Nehemiah did in response to the opposition, but we also see what he did not do. Nehemiah didn't respond in kind. He didn't fight back. He didn't argue with the enemy. He didn't try to defend himself or his work that was called into question, right? Oh, yeah? I'll walk and hold a million foxes. You know why? Because that leads us to to letter B. He didn't respond that way because Nehemiah knew whose work it was. Nehemiah knew whose work it was. Nehemiah had a work to do in Jerusalem, but it didn't come from him. It wasn't born out of his desires, his dreams, or his ambitions. No, the work he had to do was put in his heart by God himself. Nehemiah 2.12. He says, what my God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem. The work didn't originate with Nehemiah. I think this is important for us to understand. Nehemiah didn't one day just have a good idea that he thought he would pursue and then slap God's name onto it. Because this happens far too often today. In our church, in churches all over the country, someone has an idea of what they want to do or how they want to live. They ignore what God's word has to say about it. They don't spend any time in prayer. And I think, or they think that they can pull the God told me to card anytime they're questioned about it. The desire for the work was placed in Nehemiah's heart by God. It was born through prayer and fasting. And if you look back at his prayer in chapter 1, you'll see that it was even confirmed through God's word. And so when Nehemiah responds to the opposition, he is certain that the work is the Lord's. So he's able to leave the retaliation up to him. And I understand that's a hard thing to do. 
But that's got to be our response. He's letting the Lord take care of the opposition. Look at how he ends his prayer in verse 5. He says, they have provoked who? Thee to anger before the builders. Not me. Now, if you look back on what Sam Ballant and Tobiah said, they didn't mention God at all. Everything they said was about Nehemiah and the Jews. But that's not how Nehemiah saw it because he knew whose work he was doing. And so he said, they have provoked thee to anger. He says, God, you're the one they're messing with. He didn't say, can you believe what they said about us? Did you hear how they made fun of us? Nehemiah didn't take offense because he knew he was just doing what the Lord asked him to do. You see, even though the enemy was directly mocking Nehemiah and the builders, Nehemiah didn't take it personal because it wasn't his work. It was the work of the Lord. Nehemiah was just being obedient to what the Lord put on his heart to do. And listen, this should be our same response. This should be our same response today as we carry out the work of the Lord. We must understand that any opposition we come against is not an attack on us, but it's because the enemy hates what the Lord is doing through us. That's why he tells us not to be surprised if the world hates us. 1 John 3.13, marvel not, my brethren, if the world hates you. God's like, don't be shocked if the world hates you. Okay, How did you not see this coming? I've been giving you warning signs all throughout Scripture. Matthew 5, 11 through 12. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely. For whose sake? For my sake. For God's sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad. That's how we should respond when we face that opposition. For great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. We have to know that we're not working for our own sake. We're working for something greater. John 13, 15 through 16 says, The servant is not greater than his Lord. We're called to serve God. He's our Lord. He's our master. If the world has a problem with what we're doing, they can talk to him about it. We can give it to him because it's not our work. We're just being obedient. John 15, If the world hates you, ye know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love his own, but because ye are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. John 17, 14. I have given them thy word, and the world hath hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. And then 2 Timothy 3.12. It's my least favorite verse in the Bible. And I feel like every time I teach something, this verse pops up. So maybe I should stop saying. It's my least favorite verse. I'm sorry, Lord. 2 Timothy 3.12, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. It's a guarantee. It's a guarantee. Listen, when the world is against you and persecutes you for doing the work of the Lord, remember, it's not because they hate you, it's because they hate our Lord. They are his enemy, and therefore they are against us if we serve him. So if you're cruising through life and you haven't really experienced any persecution for living a godly life, it's time you take a look at what you're doing and who you're living for. Because persecution will be a guarantee if you're living for the Lord. Understand whose work we're placed here to do. It'll make it a lot easier to respond the way that Nehemiah did. We can rejoice in knowing that we suffer for our Savior's sake, and like Nehemiah, we can leave dealing with the enemy to him, because it's not our work they're against. If you're doing the Lord's work, you will experience opposition, 
and how you respond to that opposition will determine the result. That brings us to our third point, the result. And I love how this passage continues. Nehemiah is doing a worthy work. He's inevitably faced with opposition. He responds by giving it over to God. And then look at how nonchalant this next verse goes. So, built we the wall. Like, eh. So we just, kept, we just kept doing what we were doing. So built we the wall. And all the wall was joined together until the half thereof. For the people had a mind to work. If we can keep the perspective that Nehemiah had, then the result of our response to the opposition is that the work will continue. The work continued. Nehemiah and God's people got right back to work. They didn't stop to catch their breath. They didn't take a mental health break. They continued the work. I think what we can learn from this is that sitting ministry out is rarely, if ever, the answer. I've heard so many people say over the years they need to take a break from ministry as if that's what's best for their relationship with God. Or they say it's what's best for the season of life that their family's in, when in truth, what's best for your family is to involve them in the work right alongside of you. We saw that last week when Troy taught on the old gate, the only gate where there was a family serving together. Adjusting your ministry may be what's needed, but never stopping the work. The work must continue because it is necessary and our time is short. So the work continued, but we also see that the work of each individual joined together. It joined together. And this is the beautiful, beautiful thing about serving in and with the church body. We all have a part to play to make this thing work. And if you're not doing your part, you're not only missing out, but the rest of the church body's missing out too. Our work has to join together. Ephesians 4.16, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working and the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. We all must be fitly joined together, everyone doing their part for the benefit of the body and to see this work edified, built up. This is how the body is designed to work, every member doing their part in relationship to each other. Doing the work together is a bond to our relationships. I've had what I would consider a lot of friends come and go over the years, and do you know which ones I'm closest to? Even if we don't have a lot in common, and this includes the guys I work with who I love. We have different interests, different personalities, but the single greatest factor that ties me to them is whether or not they do the work with me. That's how the body should be. We must continue the work and we must continue it together. And then the last thing I want us to see is what I believe to be the key to this whole passage. The key to dealing with opposition and accomplishing the work is having the right mind. It's having the right mind. This is found in the last line of verse 6. So built we the wall, and all the wall was joined together unto the half thereof. Why? For the people had a mind to work. You see, the reason the people were able to resist the enemy and ignore the opposition, the reason Nehemiah was able to give it over to God and to move on, the reason that they were able to continue the work and build the wall together is because the people had a mind to work. They had already decided before this point that they were going to build the wall no matter what. It didn't matter what opposition they faced, what challenges they had to overcome, what obstacles were in the way, and what hardships they had to endure. The enemy couldn't get inside their head because they had already made up their mind on what they were going to do and stopping the work of their Lord was not on the list. 
And this is key because we need to do the same thing. When we first decide to join the Lord at work, we must decide beforehand that we're going to move forward regardless of what tries to stop us. Because in that moment of temptation, in that moment of persecution, in that moment of uncertainty, if we don't have a mind to work, then the enemy will get a foothold. And that foothold, that foothold will grow into a stronghold where the enemy occupies our mind. It happens when we get concerned about what everyone else is saying. It happens when we allow the enemy to question our work instead of trusting God, what he has already shown us in his word. Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven and 38, the great commandment. Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy, what? Mind. This is the first and great commandment. Loving God with all your mind is the great commandment. Because if you give any room to the devil in that area, he will take advantage of it. And then we see in James 1.8, a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Certainly don't want anything unstable when you're building a wall, right? So the first thing you have to do is make sure you have the right mind. The way you do that, number one, is you must protect your own mind. You must protect your own mind. You must protect your own mind because the battle begins in your head. If the enemy can get control of your thoughts, what we allow into our minds, then our affections and our behavior will be overtaken shortly thereafter. And so let me just say this. Uh, with this kids and tech class coming up, let me just take a second. Um, why this is going to be so crucial. Right, so we'll talk about some very blunt and sensitive topics uh, in that 9 a.m. class. So this is obviously, like Todd had mentioned, for all of you parents with kids of any age. Uh, and this is also for our middle school and high school uh, and so let me really encourage parents to come with your kids. Don't uh, just one of you come. Both of you should be there. But every day we leave our minds susceptible to the enemy's attacks through all the media we consume. And it, and it grows worse and worse. It's a scary thing what we found in research for this class. But the enemy will use it because the enemy's goal is to take control of your mind. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4. In whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. The enemy knows that if he can keep control of your mind, then he can keep uh, the work from ever beginning. That's why over and over again in Scripture, we're commanded to take control of what goes on inside our heads. And the way we do that is by fighting back with the word of God. Look at this, 2 Corinthians 10.5, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. How do we get the knowledge of God? It's through his word. It's our weapon in this fight. Romans 12.2, be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Being conformed to this world begins by what you allow into your minds. The thing we put there on purpose, the things we watch, that we read, that we listen to, and the thoughts that we allow to run wild in our heads that lead to worry and anxiety and depression, that's why we're commanded to renew our minds. And we do that with the Word of God. At salvation, our spirit was born again and indwelt by the Holy Ghost. As far as these bodies go, we're stuck in them, right? Paul calls it, calls it a body of death. 
We're stuck there until our bodies will be redeemed and glorified. But our minds, our minds must be renewed day by day as long as we're on this earth. We must renew our minds with the word of God. 2 Corinthians 11.3, But I fear lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Again, what the enemy is trying to do is nothing new. This is what he did back in the garden with Eve. Don't let the enemy corrupt your mind and pull you away from the word of God. Philippians 4, 7 and 8. And the peace of God which passes understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. And do you know what every one of those words describes in verse 8? It's the word of God. Think on these things. Fill your mind with it. 2 Timothy 1.7, God has not given us the spirit of fear, one of the tactics of the enemy, but a sound mind. 1 Peter 1.13, wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober. To have the right mind, you must protect your mind. You must protect your mind. And then also, we must have the same mind. We must have the same mind. Again, if we're going to accomplish this work, we're going to have to do it together. And for us to work together, we must have the same mind. So where do you suppose we get that same mind? From the Word of God. It's the same way we protect our mind. We can have the same mind through the Word of God. Philippians 2.5, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. 1 Corinthians 2.16, for who hath known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. We have it in the word of God. Romans 12, 16, be of the same mind one toward another. 1 Corinthians 1, 10, now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing. There be no divisions among you. Also key when you're building a wall, right? We don't want any gaps in there. No divisions. But that ye may be perfectly joined together, how? In the same mind. And in the same judgment. Philippians 1.27 Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that ye stand fast in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. 1 Peter 4.1 For as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves. How? Likewise with the same mind. For he that has suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin. When we arm ourselves with the same mind, we protect ourselves from the attack of the enemy because our mind is the front line of the battlefield. If we have any divisions, if we have any gaps in what we're doing, the enemy will make his way in. Church, could you imagine? Could you imagine what God could do in us and through us if we all left here today with a mind to work? If we showed up to the work, if we showed up to the fight unified behind the word of God, knowing what he has called us to, determined to do the work, this is a worthy work. And you can be sure that the enemy will hear about it.